SBS Radio. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Happy to have your company this Monday, September 19. Bertrand Tungandami ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami, and as always, very pleased to be your host once again. Now, coming up in your program today, we have a conversation with two acclaimed artists, Judy Watson and Helen Johnson, talking about their exhibition, The Red Thread of History, Loose Ends. It's an exploration of complex and varied perspectives on colonization, especially the colonial legacy and the role of women along with motherhood and family. Ever, ever wondered how every year Australia poses twice a year to honor the 100,000 men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice while fighting in overseas? Was yet not a single moment is spared to reflect on the thousands of indigenous men and women and white settlers who died in the frontier wars? In the program, we'll explore calls to have that question answered. Also in the program, Birpai Dangati woman Auntie Rhoda Radley reflects on the Black Man Point Massacre, in 1826, around 300 men, women and children, all indigenous, were killed at Blackman Point near Port Macquarie, but the event was never officially recognized. In this episode, Auntie Rhoda Radley explores the continuing impact of this massacre. All this and many more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. This bulletin, Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews vows to rename the Marunda Hospital to honor Queen Elizabeth II despite indigenous opposition. Mourners rushed Westminster Hall before the queue to visit Queen Elizabeth II's coffin closes. And the federal government creates a new disaster management body ahead of a difficult summer. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has defended the renaming of the Marunda Hospital to honor Queen Elizabeth II. It follows opposition from indigenous groups and leaders about the scrapping of the Aboriginal language name. In a pre-election pledge, the Andrews government has vowed to rebuild the hospital in Melbourne's east at a cost of more than $1 billion. The Premier says renaming the hospital to honor Queen Elizabeth is an appropriate move. The entire local government area uses the same name and I think it's a fitting tribute to someone in Queen Elizabeth II who uh, was a great supporter of our health system and a great supporter of health care. It's a new hospital, a brand new hospital and it needs a new name and that's what we're going to give it. 
A New Zealand museum will return six Aboriginal artefacts to their traditional owners in the Northern Territory more than a century after they were first taken. The objects include a boomerang, cutting tool and stone, stone knives. They were originally acquired in Tennant Creek, in Tennant Creek, the 18th or 19th century by telegraph station master James Field and British-born anthropologist Baldwin Spencer and came to the Tauru Otago Museum through exchanges with Museum Victoria and anthropologist Frederick Vincent Knapp. The traditional owners have indicated that a selection of the returned objects will be displayed at the local art and culture centre. That's in Tennant Creek where they belong. The last mourners have rushed to join the queue outside Westminster Hall to pay their respects to the late Queen Elizabeth II. Access to her coffin will, cost, will close at 6.30am local time ahead of her funeral later in the day, but authorities warn the queue has reached capacity. Queen Elizabeth's body will be carried to nearby Westminster Abbey for the official ceremony before being laid to rest with her husband Prince Philip at Windsor Castle. If Parson is one of the mourners joining the queue in its final hours to pay tribute to the late monarch. I was wavering as 50-50 whether to get in the queue or not and then we live quite close to here so I thought I saw it went down to eight hours and it was a tower bridge so I was like okay it only takes us 10 minutes to get there so we'll go and join see how far we can get before I lose my energy it just keep standing. Queen Elizabeth II's funeral carries the distinction of being the UK's first state funeral since Sir Winston Churchill in 1966 and is said to be a geopolitical phenomenon with most of the world's leaders gathering for the event. While millions prepare to pay their respects to Britain's longest reigning monarch at a funeral in London, Indigenous Australians are speaking up about the experience of sorrow under the 1,000-year-old monarchy. Despite most of Britain's empire shrinking during Elizabeth's reign, the British monarch is still head of state of 14 other realms, including Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Clayton Simpson Speed Clayton Simpson Speed from the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Rights Association says the role of the British monarchy in the colonisation of Australia and its impact on First Nations people in Australia must not be forgotten. More well, sad for them. Um, while they're mourning their queen, we're mourning our people. We're mourning our old people. Um, we've had enough. And it is an insult to declare at the click of a finger a day of mourning on the 22nd of September. Uh, we've been calling for a day of mourning since 1938. And while, while they mourn their Queen, we will mourn our people. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese has met his British and Canadian counterparts in London ahead of Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. It comes after Mr Albanese attended a reception for world leaders hosted by King Charles III at Buckingham Palace. Mr Albanese has told the ABC while the focus of his meetings with Britain's new leader Liz Truss and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was primarily the passing of Queen Elizabeth, they also discussed relations between the countries. We've come to an economic and trade agreement that is due to go through our parliaments. Uh, we had a discussion as well about uh, the uh, potential of a, a visit by Prime Minister Trust to, to Australia. 
Motorists are being warned of double demerit points on Australian roads ahead of the National Day of Mourning for the late Queen Elizabeth II. Double demerits will apply from 12 a.m. Thursday, September 21 until 11.59 p.m. on September 25. It comes as Prime Minister Anthony Albanese re- reveals key details for the memorial service to be held on September 21 to honor the late monarch. Australian Idol star Anthony Cole Kalea will perform at the event held at Parliament House in Canberra with TV presenter Melissa Doyle playing host. Ahead of a difficult summer for much of the country, the federal government is changing the way it handles natural disasters. Two key agencies have recently merged the National Recovery and Resilience Agency and Emergency Management Australia. They have now become one body, the National Emergency Management Agency, and will be led by Brendan Moon, currently head of Queensland's Reconstruction Authority. Mary Watt, the Minister for Disaster and Emergency Management, told the ABC these bureaucratic changes will see a faster emergency response. It never really made sense to have two separate functions under two separate departments and two separate ministers around disaster management. And by bringing those together, we think that will improve communication and coordination, not just within the federal government, but then with the state and territory governments and local governments as well. The Greens will introduce a bill into the federal parliament to increase and make changes to Australia's paid parental leave scheme. The party wants to see the scheme boosted from 18 to 26 weeks with the ability for each parent to take at least six weeks of leave and the balance of 14 weeks to be decided by the family. The bill in the Senate adds pressure on the government to improve the parental leave scheme with independent MPs also planning to introduce a separate but similar motion in the lower house next week. In a statement, Green Senator Larissa Waters says improving the scheme will show the government is serious about boosting women's workforce participation and can be afforded by scrapping the, the Stage 3 tax cuts. The government has said it will consider expanding the scheme if it wins a second term because it is currently dealing with budget constraints including $1 trillion of debt. State emergency services in the New South Wales town of Canada are urging residents to prepare for further flooding this week. At least four homes have been inundated as the ACS continue to assess damage in the region. The Namoi River peaked at 8.61 metres on Sunday morning and was still hovering above major flood levels Sunday evening. David Drunken from the ACS says further downpours are expected in the coming days. We are seeing predictions up to 30 to 60 millimetres midweek and our concern is that the flooding we experienced Friday and Saturday nights, if that we do receive that rain, there's every chance we'll see very similar flooding around the same times, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Japan's meteorological agency, JIMA, is urging millions of people to take shelter as Typhoon Nanmadol makes landfall in southwestern Japan. The storm officially arrived in Yakagoshima around 7 p.m. local time with high winds of over 240 kilometers per hour, over 500 millimeters of rain in less than 24 hours in parts of the southwestern Kyushu region. The JMA has issued a rare special warning and alert is issued only when it forecasts conditions seen once in several decades. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is calling for the highest level of vigilance needed against the mudslide, flooding and overflowing rivers. 
Do not go near dangerous areas. If you feel that you're in danger, do not hesitate to evacuate. Please take early action to save your lives. Evacuating at night is extremely dangerous. Please evacuate to safe areas like high places and sturdy buildings while it is still light. More bodies have been exhumed from a recently discovered grave site in eastern Ukraine. Ukrainian officials last week said they had found 440 bodies in a forest near Izium. Most were said to be civilians with the cause of death unknown. Authorities believe it will take two weeks to exhume all the bodies, many of which allegedly show signs of torture. The Kremlin has not commented on the discovery of the graves. The Australian Maritime Safety Authority is searching for a missing recreational plane with at least one person on board. The light aircraft was last seen on Sunday afternoon in northeast Victoria. AMSA says they are coordinating an air search between Mount Beauty, Koryong and Talangata Valley after such efforts were called off overnight due to poor weather and lower visibility. And to sport in the AFL, Patrick Cripps from Carlton has won this year's Brownlow medal, scoring 29 votes in the count held on Sunday night. The sporting event for the best and fairest player returned to a full ceremony in Melbourne over the weekend for the first time since 2019. Cripps narrowly beat La... Lucky Neil from Brisbane who won the prize back in 2020 and he told Channel 7 of his passion for the game. I said at my 150th game this year that you know family is the backbone of um, what people do and um, I actually teared up that day and I'm a bit more prepared or I had a few more beers than I did that, that day but um, you know my, my, my parents, um, my brothers, um, they meant everything to me but most importantly my fiance, uh, Mon, um, She's the backbone of what I do. They're all the backbone of what I do. And you can't play high-level sport without a good backbone. So thank you. And now having a look at the weather around the country. Broome, sunny 30 degrees. Perth, showers 17. Adelaide, mostly sunny 18. Melbourne, a shower or two 16. Hobart, partly cloudy 15. Albury, Wodonga, mostly sunny 14. Canberra, much the same 15 degrees. Wollongong, sunny day 20. Sydney, much the same 23. Newcastle, sunny 23 degrees. Brisbane, similar conditions 29. Cairns, partly cloudy 31. Alice Springs, a sunny day 34. Darwin, mostly sunny 30. And the Torres Strait Islands, a mostly sunny day and a top of 32 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. Join the conversation on radio, online, and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. You're listening to NITV Radio, and I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Now, coming up next in your program, have a conversation with two acclaimed artists, Judy Watson and Helen Johnson, talking about their exhibition, The Red Thread of History, Loose Ends. In this exhibition, the pair explore Australia's colonial legacy and the role of women along with motherhood and family. Also, have you ever wondered how every year Australia poses twice to honour the 100,000 men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice while fighting in overseas wars? Yet, not a single moment is spared to reflect on the thousands of Indigenous men and women and white settlers who died in the frontier wars. In the programme, we'll explore calls to have that question answered. 
Also in the program, Bipai Nangati Woman, Auntie Rhoda Radley reflects on the Black Mind Point massacre and its continued impact. In 1826, around 300 indigenous men, women and children were killed at Black Mind Point near Port Macquarie, but the event, the event was never officially recognized. Auntie Rhoda Radley reflects on the impact of this uh, gruesome massacre. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. You're listening to NITV Radio and I'm Bertrand Tungandami. Joining me are two celebrated artists, Judy Watson and Helen Johnson, to talk about their upcoming exhibition, The Red Thread of History, Loose Ends. Helen and Judy, before we explore your upcoming exhibition, can you tell us about yourselves in a few words? Helen Johnson. My parents came out here from the UK a few years before I was born. So second generation immigrant. Um, I make paintings that often reflect on the, the way that colonial culture gets perpetuated and the ways that it gets reinforced and trying to throw some of those things open for for our um for we colonists to think about ourselves and those cultural structures that we inhabit and uh, my name's judy watson i'm a one-year woman from northwest queensland our language group cuts is cut by the northern territory queensland border i live in brisbane and it's great to be down here in Melbourne at the moment with Helen uh, installing the show at Mama and feeling very connected to being down here and really looking forward to meeting up with the community as well. Now, this exhibition explores complex and varied perspectives on colonisation, the colonial legacy and the role of women along with motherhood and family, and this is something that brings you together. We're women and we're mothers And we come from women and mothers as well. With my work, I have looked at my matrilineal Aboriginal uh, line through my family and I have some works related to places and countries, when I say countries, Aboriginal countries and stations and things like that, that through maps that our family have worked across and on or were born on or in the case of my great-great-grandmother, Rosie, escaped from a massacre on. I also have some silhouettes of some of the women in my family and also an art assistant. So there's a silhouette of my mother across country and mapping, um, myself, my daughter, one of my cousins, and then one of my art assistants. One of the things that interests me about working with Judy is having these certain levels on which we connect and have similarities like through experiences of motherhood and being women being daughters and then inhabiting a really different subject position um, in relation to colonization and being a beneficiary of that on my part and a participant in it I think that a lot of the work in this show addresses transmission how memories and stories get transmitted but also the things that don't get transmitted I often if I'm making work looking at this society 
you know, sort of turning the anthropological lens back onto itself. A lot of that work involves going into archives and pulling out imagery and aspects of history that I certainly wasn't taught in school and that tend not to be given much airtime because they're not very palatable. Like the, the Hansard records from the first sitting of Parliament after Australia was federated, for example, make very clear the the white supremacist project that Australia is. They don't often bring those documents out or um, refer to them, even though they're foundational. So, yeah, thinking about the things that get transmitted and the things that don't on both very personal levels and broader cultural levels. And there is one woman who comes up in the Skullduggery video. Her name was Agnes um, Kerr, and she's, she was a matron at Burktown Hospital up in the Gulf of Carpentaria. She comes up as not a particularly nice person. She said there was nothing she wanted to do more than go bone hunting. That was collecting bones and ancestral remains from Aboriginal people from our country and other people's country and then trading it or sending it off to the Welcome Museum in London. And so the documentation has this backwards-forwards letter writing and documentation of this trade that is going on, and it was only closed down because of the, the war, the World War. So I think it's interesting to think that uh, many of the people that you think of to do with colonisation are male, but there can be these, you know, these these women, not as many as far as I know, but uh, she was certainly one example. And as Hetty Perkins, um, a friend of mine and Aboriginal curator, said, I wonder if she would have liked to have donated her bones to a museum. Probably not. Mm. <laughs> you know, there's a very different way perception of um, how she and the other people she's um, in correspondence with are treating our ancestral remains. So that video is skullduggery and it's really looking at that sort of positioning and classification and lack of respect for culture and communities and people. Skullduggery is one of your videos produced a couple of years ago. It's a powerful way of uh, retelling Australia's history and one thing we know about Australia's history, uh, the history of colonization, it's uh, mainly about uh, recounting the experiences of colonizers. Now, is it right to characterize your collaboration as an effort to look at the history from a different perspective? To look at this part of history from a different perspective? Yeah, one other thing with the video is that um, the letters are read out by three Aboriginal people. So it's like uh, it's turning the whole thing upside down because you've got Daniel Browning from Radio National, you know, Bunjalung and other Aboriginal man, and he's got many other cultures within him, uh, Roxanne MacDonald and Leif Charlton. So they are reading these stories uh, within the Skullduggery video that are talking about this trading of ancestral bones, but they're reading it from the perspective that that could be their families as well. So you can feel that tinge of irony and sarcasm and and also deep hurt, I think, within it. So that's another way of sort of like tipping it up and on it, on itself. Now, the exhibition would launch at uh, MoMA on the 10th of September and uh, run through to November. How many pieces are displayed altogether? Ooh, there's quite a few. The exhibition is spread across 
three galleries within the museum. And there's some works that um, have toured from an iteration of this exhibition that was at the MGA up in Canberra. Um, but we've also brought in a range of other works into the conversation for this iteration of the show, some older works and some more recent. We both um, have painting as a, a central aspect of our respective art practices. And um, in, there, in many ways there are overlaps in our material approaches to that that also cross over with printmaking and working large scale and often on unstretched fabrics and working on the floor and embossing and things like this. Um, but then the, the outcomes of those processes are really different for each of us as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about the main thread of the exhibition, the red thread of uh, history, Loose Ends? Again, it's like this sense of, of things weaving in and out and sometimes touching each other and sometimes diverging. And that, um, that motif of the thread comes into some of the works as well. Mm. And that, Judy, maybe do you want to talk about the red thread? Yeah. So Ernest uh, Rashner talked about ochre being the red thread of history and ochre, you know, whether it's red ochre particularly, um, is something which has been at the beginning, according to him, of every aspect of civilization around the world, whether it's at birth or death, it's a really important resource that's been traded. I've certainly been to places all around the world that I've, I've seen and seen some of the ochre that is there. And then I was telling Helen about um, Henry Park's comment that I read where he talked about the crimson thread, and but he was talking about the white Australia policy during Federation, and he wasn't talking about certainly any blackfellas or anybody of colour. It was very much a, you know, the Anglo, the white, mm. you know, sort of... Um, Shoring up the bloodline. Yeah, that's like. right. That was the bloodline he was talking about. So that's where it's sort of bringing them both together, the red thread of history, loose strands. It's those ideas. Well, for me, I uh, talk about trying to uncover concealed histories and work with those, what's been buried, what's been supposedly lost and bring it up to the surface so that other people can see it. And uh, I think, you know, Helen is doing that too with the way that she's retrieving these, you, you talk about Jules. Yeah. yeah, just looking back into the archive, as I was saying, and finding imagery, you know, from from this region, Nam, what was then called Port Phillip, imagery that was published in magazines and newspapers that reveals attitudes that the colonisers had towards themselves as much as anything, which is something I'm really interested in. Um, you know, I feel like it's it's not for me to to tell Indigenous stories or represent Indigenous narratives in my work but I do think it's important for us to do the work of examining our own cultural foundations and the attitudes that were embedded at that time and that remain um, even if we're not conscious of them or if they're not as visible to us as they 
ought to be, you know, they still define the way that we inhabit this place as a society and the, the problems that that gives rise to. I've also looked at um, deaths in custody and so there is um, a body of work, Vale of Tears, which has got some of the deaths in custody, certainly not all of them, but the ones that um, uh, communities have allowed The Guardian to publish, The Guardian newspaper. Newspaper, and yeah. That of work. Yeah, yeah. And so there's text of some of those deaths in custody, whether it's just an initial, but then there'll be where, you know, the age of the person, that sort of thing. But in front of it is hung muslin. And then um, I had friends and colleagues and any uh, family come and sew welt wounds. And by the sewing of the welt wounds, it's like the idea of the needle going in and to pierce and then come back through and repair. It's like sewing up a wound, uh, whether it's in your psyche, uh, whether it's, you know, the wound on the body, the body of evidence, that sort of idea. I think that idea of community working together, uh, we went back up to our country in, in northwest Queensland with some of my family um, and also around our kitchen table, sort of in Brisbane or in the studio with people coming in. And by working together and then sharing the stories, I think it's something where you generate the community interaction, but it's also like a, a healing thing, but then it also goes out because whoever has worked on the project will share that story with their family um, and their community, and so it permits into the, the wider generations. Now, Helen and Judy, before I let you go, anything you'd like to add uh, to the conversation for our listeners? Just I hope that people come along and are able to just go into the space, maybe not knowing anything, and feel, feel something. Um, you know, some people say that if you can feel something, you know, if you can get people to feel something, it can make you think or make them think, be drawn to it. Don't necessarily go and le- read the label first. Mm. Just wander through and and then start learning about it. And don't, don't be worried, you know, just go in and um, sit, see where it takes you. Yeah, I feel like... Um... You know, there is a lot in the exhibition. There's a lot of information to chew over and a lot of, like, elements drawn from different times and places to to try and process. And I think it's, um, you know, it's an invitation more than it's a statement of fact or anything like that. It's more like inviting people to come in and think about their own relation to all of these complexities that are part of living day-to-day in this in this place yeah and there's going to be um, a kids interactive you know sort of uh, events you know coming up too so keep an eye out for those judy watson and helen johnson thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about your upcoming exhibition the red thread of history loose ends thanks for having thank us. you Join NITV Radio on Facebook. Every year, Australia pauses twice to honour the 100 men, 100,000 men and women 
who paid the ultimate sacrifice while fighting in overseas wars. But there's no similar reflection for the tens of thousands of First Nations people and white settlers who died here on Australian soil during what's known as the Frontier Wars. As Lucy Murray reports, Indigenous educators say that needs to change. The legend of Aboriginal warrior Pemaway has been passed down through Durang generations. He united 100 warriors from different tribes and marched into the fledgling colony of Parramatta, west of Botany Bay. He led the men to the soldiers' barracks and declared the British settlers needed to stop hunting First Nations people like animals. It's a story of bravery and of a formidable leader, but it's a story not known to all Australians. Pemaway's battles are part of the frontier wars that are not formally commemorated in Australia. I think truth's important. Our people did, you know, did try to resist um, someone coming and taking their country and the destruction that's involved with that. Drag educator Chris Tobin says the stories of the frontier wars need to be told as they're the foundation on which this nation was built. If people then want to think a little bit further ahead, they might start to put the dots together that, you know, we're still an occupied people. Now, not every Aboriginal person sees it this way, right? But a lot of us do. Frontier researcher and Wiradjuri woman Mina Murray says too often frontier battles are taught as massacres. And while there were many massacres, there was also fierce fighting on both sides. There was consistent and sustained resistance across the entire continent. If you lose that when you start to look at all battle battles as massacres... You lose the agency, you lose that story of resistance, you lose the strength, you lose their stories. Part of changing the public narrative is commemoration. In a historic first, the frontier wars were acknowledged alongside other conflicts at this year's Anzac Day March in Hobart. Community members paid homage to the at least 800 people who fought and died in Tasmania's Black War. Is a recognition the chief executive of the Tasmanian Returned and Services League, John Hardy, says will be repeated on Remembrance Day. November the 11th is, is a service that recognises all conflicts. Uh, it seems a perfect opportunity to include the Aboriginal community of Tasmania into that. And I think it's only right that we do that. We've got to remember our past, but we've got to remember all of our pasts if we want reconciliation. The Australian War Memorial in Canberra is also moving to acknowledge frontier conflicts. Parts of the expansion currently under construction will include a colonial gallery. The director, Matt Anderson, telling SVS News he will be forming design teams for a pre-1914 gallery in 2025. This is movement Mina Murray says is in the right direction for recognition and truth-telling. This country has a lot of wounds, wounds that exist in the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. And I think if you want to talk about starting to heal, you need to understand what caused the wounds in the first place. SBS will premiere a three-part documentary series exploring Australia's frontier wars beginning Wednesday the 21st of September. Lucy Murray, SBS News. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are warned that the following recordings may contain the sounds and voices of deceased persons. Conversations on Country is a series of diverse stories of place and being of the Gumbangia, Yangati, Biripai and Waramai Nations.
My name's Auntie Rhonda. I'm a strong Birupaidangari woman. And we're sitting here at Blackman's Point. So Blackman's Point is north and south of Hastings River. Uh, beautiful afternoon here. And we have Wakan the crow in the background. So he's one of our spirit birds. So we won't mind him if he gets a bit talkative and loud, eh? I think for me it's um, it's my responsibility to heal my trauma and part of my trauma is is what my ancestors experienced. So for me I feel I have a strong obligation not to hand that on to the next generation and that trauma I felt um, stemmed from loss of land separated from family and unfinished business like here at Blackman's Point where we're, we're wanting some recognition, acknowledgement of what happened here as part of uh, the collective Australian history. And I think, you know, I always um, feel that we're here for a reason and I think Blackman's Point massacre is, you know, part of that story for me just to push that forward. As a child, I would um, I would go on the boats with, with Uncle, and one night I remember um, I would go with him, come out, he was um, doing a shot, putting a net out, and I was only a little one, and we'd come and ride over here, very close to the sandbar, and I just remember having this real strong sense of sadness and. Um, and real shiver in my bones uh, as a little one. And, yeah, I think through, you know, that child's lens. I remember coming out, um, out onto the veranda because that's where we go to the toilet when we're little ones. And I would see this spirit at the end of this um, log that was overhanging uh, the creek and he would be just sitting there waiting. And, yeah, I'd often see him there. And I just sort of had a sense, because I knew knew the story then, that maybe he's waiting for something, for his spirit to be at rest or his family spirit to be at rest. It just seemed like, you know, something needs to um, be done. As a, a child, I just saw I had this real sense. I can't say uh, I knew when I first heard it because we're always eardropping as children so we maybe heard it but didn't hear it and then later on we had more of a conversation around it so you hear things but you know you, in some ways you're eardropping and it was adult talk yeah but um, yeah I can't say when but I, I know that time I just recounted it's when I felt it. I felt the story. Well, the story was that that's quite a few. What's come through our story, there was quite a few. There was you know, a suggestion about 300 
Aboriginal people were herded down here and were herded in onto the sandbar and they were just mowed down, they were shot. And um, what happened was that the women were raped before they were shot. There's no mention uh, in the records in, um, about the children, but we know through, through um, our oral, oral story that the women didn't go through anywhere without the children, but there was no mention of the children. Um, and that's what, you know, what the resistance was. Well, there's no written evidence, but there is evidence in um, Wilson's diary so of saying about the killing of the men and the raping of the women but there's the children that's in our story where's the children we know the children were also um, part of that killing you know you've got to set the scene in those days where you know, we weren't even considered human. You know, when we talk to people about that, they just can't get their head around it. How could that be? But that's just part of our history, and you've got to go back and look at those times. And, you know, we had some stories where, you know, that come through, but a lot of the time, you know, it was sort of bad business. Like, we, we as Aboriginal people, you know, we are just moving across the land, you know, practicing our culture and in lots of ways um, it was quite different to how white followers would move across the land because they it was all about ownership owning something as I think our mob I know our mob it was more having a relationship with it so you know that might be just a tree um, to a white follower cut it down because I'll you know I want to want to live there sort of thing but you might have been ta- taken someone's kin out we had a relationship maybe with that area so for me you know when I'm Birupai Dungari um, born in Port Macquarie so I have a real spirit connection here to um, Port Macquarie and surrounding areas all the I suppose the land I've walked over I've felt um, a sense of belonging to and I'm forever, will be forever grateful for that because that's what gives me strength, that real connection to Nyabarai, Mother Earth. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things in play when we start talking, you know, about why people resist or how people feel. Um, we talk about generational trauma, we talk about generational guilt. And we, you know, talk about the resistance because this area, if it's then recognised as a massacre site, will it reduce, you know, property? <laughs> That's where, you know, some people were coming from, but, you know, um, it, my property's not going to be worth as much because it's near a massacre site. I don't know if that's true or not, but we shouldn't, you know, people will come here and feel it anyway. We have a story of um, this lady that contacted the Birupai Land Council some time ago and um, she had a little um, Aboriginal foster child and she came here and and she, she said that this little boy, he just laid down and he said, was very traumatised and he said, stop the noises, stop the screaming. 
and she rang the land council and said, did anything bad happen here? So even though we we may resist wanting to know, I think there is a deep knowing that this is true, that something bad happened here. Conversations on Country is proudly brought to you by SBS and Saltwater Freshwater Arts Alliance and was recorded on Gumbangia, Dangati, Biripai and Warramai land. Our storyteller for this episode was proud Biripai woman, Rhonda Radley. Theme music was recorded by Grow the Music with Carrie Munro-Greentree on guitar and Ben Ferguson on didgeridoo. Special thanks also to Maddie Whitford. Production of this podcast series was by Simon Portis and Liz Keane from Headline Productions with additional production by Maddie Whitford. A big thank you also to the Murabai Aboriginal Language and Culture Cooperative for their guidance. I'm Michael Jarrett, Darundang. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. That brings us to the end of today's program. Thanking you for tuning into NITV Radio today. I hope you enjoyed the program. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. 